Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's open it to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We started a series through the Gospel of John a few weeks ago. And this morning we are beginning what is one of the mountain peaks of the Bible. Now all of the Bible, all of it, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and good doctrine. Every single jot and tittle of the word is inspired by God. But there are a few places that are like summits, and John chapter 3 is one of those summits of Scripture. It's it's a type of chapter that when you get into it, it's like climbing up a beautiful mountain peak, and when you get to the top of that mountain peak, you can see the rest of the Bible more clearly. And this is a familiar interaction that we're going to cover today where Jesus has a conversation with a a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. And I'm going to look at the first eight verses, and then we're going to see what we are looking at, lived out, personified, displayed, symbolized in water baptism this morning as we have two members of Crosspoint partake in baptism. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to get into this text. Lord, thank you for the privilege to gather to open your word there's any uh, part of us that's just kind of in the groove of Sunday morning ritual that sometimes unwittingly can sort of numb our hearts to the to the beauty of your grace I pray that you would wipe away the dust that we would see clearly this morning that you would revive us again. For my brothers and sisters, Lord, make us love Jesus more deeply. Make us understand our salvation more biblically. Make us worship more passionately. And for any friends in this room or listening online that do not know you, Lord, I pray for the miracle of sovereign grace to happen in their lives, that you would draw dead hearts, that you would make them alive so that they can trust in Jesus. And do it all, I pray, for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to look at a truth that I think this text tells us about, and we're going to pick apart that truth and and apply it to our lives. Let's start reading in verse 1. Now, remember we've just ended in chapter 2, where Jesus has made water into wine at the wedding in Cana. It's kind of his private miracle for family and friends. And then in the second half of John chapter 2 that we looked at last week, he cleanses the temple. Hundreds of people he chases out with a whip and cord telling them that he is the temple and that he will raise this temple that will be destroyed in three days. He's speaking obviously symbolically of his work on the cross. It would come three years from the time that he does this opening public miracle. Chapter 2 ends by saying that Jesus knows what is in man, and then we see this man come to Jesus, this religious leader. Verse 1, 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was obviously one of the religious elite. He was a wealthy man. He was uh, likely came from a possibly a, a powerful military family. He, in a sense, is a kind of representative of all of the power structures of Judaism at the time. And, and he's coming to Jesus with this, with this question, with this, with this really investigation of who he is. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. I think there's something maybe, I don't want to read too much into it, but maybe there's kind of something symbolic there about the spiritual state of darkness that Nicodemus was in and the fact that John mentions that he comes by night. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now on the surface, that opening statement by Nicodemus seems sort of um, respectful and humble and in one sense it is but there is a kind of tone there. In fact, this was just a, a, a rather common way of interacting or approaching somebody that you were going to enter into a kind of social challenge or debate with. So on the surface, it seems like a pleasantry and a sort of humble formality, but maybe there's an undertone of challenge there where Jesus is coming to, or where, so I'm sorry, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. And he doesn't even really ask him a question yet, but Jesus gives him an answer in verse 3. Jesus answered him. Now, this is some of the most important words in all of the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus has not even asked a question, but remember, we just read at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, and Jesus is cutting through the fluff, and he's piercing right to the heart of Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, in verse 4, said to him, you can almost hear the incredulity in his voice, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let me just mention in verse 5, in Jesus' second sort of repeating of the same thing, he says that unless somebody is born of water and the Spirit, which has caused some people to think that maybe Jesus is referring to water baptism as being necessary for salvation, or maybe some people have thought that what Jesus is referring there to when he says born of water, when we talk about a woman who is about ready to give birth, that her water breaks, some people think it might refer to physical birth, but it's not. This is a common way that the Old Testament, specifically in Ezekiel, would speak of the work of the Spirit, combining the symbol of water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, with the work of the Spirit. So really, Jesus in verse 5 is saying exactly what he said in verse 3, but he's just talking. He's now being clearer, and he's saying that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which is one way of saying born of the Spirit, he, a person, cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, Jesus continues and he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And in verse 8, Jesus, he compares the work, the intentions of the Spirit with wind that we cannot predict. It has a mind of its own. It can't be controlled or manipulated. It goes where it wills. Now these eight verses, as I mentioned, this interaction with Nicodemus, which continues, it will handle next week, give us a picture. They are some of the clearest verses in all of the Bible that give us a picture of how a person comes to faith, how a person is saved, how a sinner is reconciled to God. So I want to state for you what I think these eight verses, the doctrine, the truth that we need to know that these eight verses illuminate for us in a clear way. And it's the doctrine of regeneration. Sometimes we might call it born again or the new birth. Those are three phrases that mean the same thing. Jesus says here, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom, to be with God forever, to be reconciled to God. You must be born again. And this is, this is language that is so foreign to Nicodemus. Really, Jesus is saying that word again could also mean from above. Something must happen to you. And this, this paradigm is so new for Nicodemus that he doesn't even know how to respond to it. And so this doctrine is the doctrine of what it means to be born again or regeneration. That's a word that you need to understand, to generate, to create something, regeneration, to recreate, to bring new life, to give new life, new birth. So let's state this doctrine that Jesus is establishing here for Nicodemus and for us in just a few sentences. I want you to see it. We'll put it on the screen. What is, what does it mean to be born again? What's happening in the new birth? What is the doctrine, the truth, the scriptural truth of regeneration? Again, all three of those phrases refer to the same thing. And here's here's a statement on what it is. An act of God in which he gives new spiritual life to a spiritually dead sinner. It is brought about by the work of the Spirit of God through the power of the gospel. This new life enables a person to respond in repentance and faith in the person and work of Christ alone for their salvation. Now, every little part of that is important. And so here's what I want us to do now is I want us to look at six truths that help us to unpack and apply what Jesus has told Nicodemus, which is essentially this statement of the doctrine, the truth, the scriptural reality of how we are born again, how we are saved, how the new birth, how regeneration happens. And only those who this has happened to can see can be with God, can enter the kingdom of God. Remember, all of the world is separated into really only two types of people. Those who are reconciled to God, who are born again, who are saved, who have the new birth, who are regenerated, and those who are not. 
And this passage tells us how that happens. So let's look at what it means to be regenerated, to be born again. Let's unpack what Jesus has said to us here with six truths. Truth number one, we are born dead, unable to change our condition in and of ourselves. That is implied in the fact that Jesus says that we need to be born again. Something must happen. A change needs to occur in us. We need to be born again to a new life. And obviously, Jesus is not talking about physical birth here. He's talking about spiritual birth. And we need to be spiritually reborn because we are by nature spiritually dead. And the only thing that our spiritual dead nature can produce in and of itself is more spiritual death. Look back at John 3, verse 6. Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there's a kind of like produces like. The flesh, which is dead in its sin and rebellion against God, produces just more flesh. And we need to be born of something outside of us, which is the Spirit. Now, where do we get this, this doctrine of the, the, the inability of man, the natural state of man? Well, it's all throughout the Bible. But let me just give you a few instances. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's another way of saying a person who is an unbeliever, the mind that is unregenerate, not born again, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, cannot ultimately please God. Even though they may appear on the surface to please God, they ultimately cannot because their heart is dead and their eyes are blind spiritually. They cannot, in a saving way, finally and fully look away from trusting in themselves and look in total faith in what Christ has done because of the spiritual condition of our hearts. This is clearly outlined for us in Ephesians chapter 2. So just, just put a thumb in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to spend a little bit of time. And if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, I think you're probably familiar with this chapter. I think Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is one of the clearest and most thorough and most magnificent descriptions of how salvation comes in all of the Bible. You guys know my love for Romans. I think Romans is maybe the highest mountain peak in the Bible, but Ephesians chapter 2 is, is, is just a, a beautiful description of the most important truth of the Bible in regards to salvation and how it comes to us. So look at verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's talking to people that are physically alive, but he's telling them that they were spiritually dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And this world has fallen too. This world is not neutral. It's going. It's a, it's a course. It's a stream that is not flowing to God. It's flowing away from him, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, don't be, don't be uh, fooled by that word prince. He's not talking about something good. He's talking about Satan. The prince of the power of the air ultimately is, by God's sovereignty and providence, allowed to really 
control this world in its fallen state. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which sounds like a terrible phrase. I mean, who are these people, these sons of disobedience? It sounds like a, such a terrible description of mankind. Who could these people be? Well, we read verse 3, and we come to find out that it's actually all of us in our natural state. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're, listen to this, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a biblical description of the state of mankind after the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Now, that may not rev you up on a Sunday morning, and you may be thinking, gosh, why did, I, why did I come this morning just to hear this? Well, friends, we're going to get to some glorious good news. But in order for news to be good, it must stand biblically against the backdrop of the very bad news of the consequences of our rebellion against God. And the Bible is utterly clear here that we are by nature, all of us. Now, let's, let's do a little bit of thinking about this because I know this, this cuts against our natural instinct, which we need to understand is by nature, our natural instinct is fallen. So let's not trust the morality or the dominant view of people around us, but, but let's, let's deal with it. It's easy for us to think about people that commit heinous crimes or terrorists or people that do terrible things. It's easy for us to categorize them like this. And we say, well, certainly they they are by nature children of wrath, but, but how is just the average good person that lives down the street, and I say average good person in air quotes, or maybe me, just maybe that's, how am I really a child of wrath? I mean, I, I don't perfectly do everything, but you know, I, I'm not a bad person. How, how can I be dead in my sins? Well, the Bible is clear that although there are varying degrees of severity of sin, even, listen to me carefully, even the seemingly most moral person, the seemingly most good person that does good things in a kind of horizontal sense, if, those, if that goodness, if their relative morality is cut off, does not acknowledge does not ultimately serve to cause them to worship the source of all goodness, which is God, then their goodness, which is detached from the source of their goodness, which is God's grace, ultimately isn't goodness. It's a kind of treason against the sovereign creator. So do you see that? So even So think of it this way. He is the potter and we are the clay. And even the clay pot that can hold some water when it doesn't acknowledge that it's been made by no act of its own, but all of its goodness flows from the kindness of God, even that pot that can hold water is shaking its fist at the potter, is not acting as it should. It may hold some water, which may do some temporal good, but it won't reconcile it to the potter because it is shaking its fist at the potter. And so even relative human morality is kind of turned in on itself. The core, the foundation of good works that don't result in worship and honor of God is actually treason. And it's a kind of sign of the spiritual death 
of every human soul. And the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that every single one of us are born into that state. Now, I, now, I think this is actually really good news because some of you may be thinking, some of you may be so focused on the fact that you're bad and that you're worse than the person around you, so therefore there's no way that God could save a person like you. Actually, no. Actually, no, all of us start off dead. We all start off dead. And now, you may have some legitimate questions as to why God would allow this, why God would even allow the fall. I think those are legitimate questions that we can wrestle with and we can struggle with. And in some mysterious way, friends, in some mysterious way that we cannot fully comprehend in our finite minds, God, who is sovereign over all, has even allowed the fall so that his glory would be put on greater display in the saving of many people out of that fall. But right now, all we need to say is that we are born spiritually dead. We are unable to change our location, which means that we need something. I'm getting ahead of myself, but do you see that understanding this sets us up for the need for something to happen to us? But before we move on, let's just, let's just think. I just want to give you a picture. Think of a dead corpse in a hospital bed, and it's just flatlined. That, that heart monitor has just gone from a, a, a very whimpering beep, and it's just flatlined. And now that corpse is dead. And that corpse is now on that, that hospital bed. And imagine us taking, that, that corpse has died of an infection, and we have found the cure to that infection. And now we bring in this vial of cure, of medicine, and we set it right next to the nightstand, to the bedstand of that hospital bed, and we put it right next to that corpse, and we say to that corpse, just drink the medicine, it will make you better. Can the corpse do that? No. Why can't it do that? Because it is unable to. It can't. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. He says we cannot please God. We can't reach for the medicine. It's there. It's right next to us. But our eyes are blind. Our heart is dead. Our ears are deaf. We can't reach. Which I think then before we move on brings us to this whole idea of free will, which we as Americans love. I'm free to do whatever I want. You can't tell me to do this. Well, friends, what, what, let's think about free will more biblically. The Bible actually is utterly clear. Our will is not free by nature. It's enslaved. Now, in a sense, we're free to do whatever our dead hearts want to do, but our dead hearts will only want to disobey God fully and finally. Do you see that? Let's think of this sanctuary as a kind of prison, okay? And if the sermon goes on too long, you might start to actually really feel that way. <laughs> but let's think of this sanctuary as a prison, and let's think of those doors as being locked. And the lock is on the outside of the door. Now, I am free to get up and walk from one end of the prison to the other. I'm free to jump up and throw a temper tantrum. I'm free to take a nap. I'm free to sit here. I'm free to sit there. In a kind of limited sense, I'm free, but I'm only free to do what my enslaved heart is able to do. I am not free 
to reach through that door and unlock it from the outside because I can't, I don't have the key. And that's the state of the human will before salvation. That's why we need to be born. Something has to happen to us, which then brings us to point number two, truth number two in this doctrine of regeneration that Jesus gives us in his conversation with Nicodemus is regeneration or being born again or the new birth happens to us. It's not something done by us. We do not reach through the door and unlock it. The door must be unlocked for us. We will not reach for the medicine. We must be enabled to reach for the medicine. Do you see that? Something from outside of us must happen. We are utterly and completely passive in the new birth, in the born-again experience, in regeneration. Let me show this to you from Ephesians chapter 2 again. Let's keep, keep reading. So we just read in verses 1 through 3 about how we're dead. We are unable. We're in a spiritual state of inability. Verse 4. Man, if you're, if you're an underliner or if you're a highlighter and you have not highlighted verse 4 of Ephesians 2, check yourself and do it right now. Or get home, if, you, if you're one of those type of people that needs the, like all the pretty colors, I'm, I'm actually kind of into that. Do it. Do not let the sun go down. If you're a highlighter or an underliner, don't let the sun go down if verse 4 is not highlighted or underlined in your, in your chapter. Fix it. Do it. Because this is, this is, this is it. We're dead, verse 3. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. So what's the motivation for what God is about to do in verse 5? What's the motivation? What's the grounding of what God is about to do in verse 5? Is it because he sees something in the dead corpse? Is it because he's responding to something in the dead corpse? Is it because something that's happened in the prison cell has impressed him and now he's responding to it and he says, oh, I'm going to let this prisoner out because of good behavior on probation? No. What's the motivation? Because, verse 4, of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to it, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what is that text saying? Friends, this is the very heart of the miracle of salvation. God, listen to this, don't miss this. God takes a dead heart and he makes it alive. He brings it back to life, not because there's anything noteworthy in that heart, but simply because he decides to love that dead heart. And the heart that is dead, that is now made alive, is not agreeing with, is not cooperating with, is in no way contributing to the act of the new birth through regeneration. It receives it wholly. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I can see. I was deaf, but now I can hear. That's what the new birth is. And what is, what is the result of this new birth? Well, truth number three. Then where does faith, because you may be thinking, Brad, 
I have to trust in Jesus. I have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Absolutely. Nobody, nobody is saved without believing in Jesus. You must have faith. But how does that faith come about? Truth number three, saving faith. Listen to me. Think about this logically. Saving faith is the result, not the reason we are born again. What's the reason we're born again? Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. The reason, the grounds, the foundation, the motivation of God is no response to anything in the dead corpse, but because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, apart from us, outside of us, he makes us alive. And now the newly regenerated, the newly enlivened heart now is equipped along with that package of salvation comes the gift of faith. Faith didn't exist in the dead heart before. It's now the result of the new heart. Do you see that? In fact, fact, that's what Paul says. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In other words, faith didn't exist in you prior to. It came with the new birth. It's the result, it's the fruit, it's the, it's the consequence, it's the part of, it's the, it's the fruit of the root of your born-againness. It's, it's what comes with the new heart. Faith. And now instantly when that new heart is now made alive, it is now enabled. It's enabled to Put its trust where you couldn't see Jesus, where the message of the gospel meant nothing to you, where you didn't hear it, and now all of a sudden, you hear it. And faith now is able to seize that thing that you need to seize, which is your trust in Jesus and your repentance for your trust in yourself. It's, it's March 21st. March 16th, this past Tuesday, on March 16th, 1989, I heard the gospel with open ears for the first time. (laughs) My older brother had been sharing the gospel with me for several years prior to that but I did not have ears to hear. My heart was not alive. And then my sister-in-law took me to this crusade on March 16th, 1989, my senior year in high school. And this man named Ernie Shavers, who some of you may remember, some of you that are older and are boxing fans, he was a former heavyweight champion of the world. He had boxed Muhammad Ali and George Foreman and all the greats. And he had been hit in the head thousands of times by all of those massively strong men. And he, he spoke like that. He, he spoke in kind of a punch-drunk, slurred speech. And through the means of a former boxer with slurred speech, now turned preacher evangelist, at that moment... 
because the wind of the Spirit just in God's providence blew that night, opened my heart, and I heard the gospel, and immediately I became aware of the fact that, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, and Jesus is real, and if I do not trust in him, and what had happened to me was God gave me ears to hear, he gave me a heart to believe, he caused the scales to fall from my eyes, and I was enabled to believe where I was previously unable. And the first breath of my new heart was to seize, to grab, to lay hold of Christ and to let go of myself. Doesn't mean in any way that I was perfect in my sanctification, but it was the moment, it was the first breath of faith. This is what John says, not in John's gospel, but in his later, 1 John, the epistle at the end of the New Testament. He says, 1 John 5, 1. Listen to the, listen to the logic and the order and the sequence of John's sentence here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So believing even though it comes immediately after a new heart is given, is a consequence. It's the result, not the reason we are born again. Truth number four, regeneration, new birth, salvation. Being born again never comes apart from the hearing of the gospel. The means by which God brings new life is through the announcement, the communication, the hearing of what Jesus has done to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners and cause them to awaken from their dead state so that they would trust in Him. God grants this new life through the word of life, which is the gospel. So Christianity is not primarily a message of morals. It's not something that a sinner can decide to do to clean themselves up because it presents a kind of ethic about a better way to live. Christianity, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, the good news is at its core an announcement of what God in his holiness has done through God the Son to satisfy his righteous wrath against our rebellion and our deadness so that those who trust in him will be reconciled to him, trusting in his perfect life, not our sinful life, trusting in his sacrificial death, not our own death, trusting in his victorious resurrection and defeat of death, sin, and the grave, not in ourselves, and that faith which we receive as part of the new birth we now trust in him and it comes as the gospel awakens deaf ears and brings life to a dead heart that's why paul says in romans chapter 1 and verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is it the gospel the good news of what jesus has done to satisfy the wrath of god and defeat sin death and the grave on in the cross and his resurrection for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why we should share the gospel. 
That's why we share the gospel every week here, because that's the very heart. That's ground zero. That's the A to Z of the Christian life. Leads us to truth five. Because the Lord does it, regeneration, the new birth, being born again. Here's wonderful news. No one is beyond the Spirit's reach. <laughs> we tend to, and this is, another, this is another sort of consequence of the fall, even believers, we tend to sort of, we still tend to battle with pessimism and man-centeredness even if we have a new heart. And don't we tend to think of this, because listen, let's just draw some implications here. This truth, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, God, Jesus has said the Spirit blows where it wills. It cannot be manipulated. The Spirit of God that brings new life cannot be channeled in one direction or another. We can't manipulate it. Much of church culture is a manipulation. It's, the, it's man's work, not the Spirit's work. And what Jesus is saying here is that salvation, the new birth, is not something that we can produce. It's not ultimately something that a person can take the initiative to decide. It must come to them, and the Spirit is sovereign in it. It will blow where it will blow, which... Which, if we're honest, we tend to interpret negatively. We tend to then consider people that the Spirit has not blown on yet. And we tend to think, well, how can God do this? This doesn't seem fair. Well, why would God save some and not the others? But really, let's just back up. Our objection to that. If, if salvation was dependent upon the free will of man, okay, let's just kind of step out of the Bible right now and step into an unbiblical view, and let's say, well, salvation is dependent, ultimately, the decisive act of salvation is dependent upon the free will of man to ultimately give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to God's offer of grace. And for us, that sort of feels fairer, doesn't it? And some people, we all will agree, there is a real thing called hell, and some people will decide, nope, I'm not going to do it. But friends, you still, that, that system, that, that theological system, which I think is not in the Bible, doesn't ultimately answer our objection. Because in this system where God leaves it up ultimately, decisively, to the free will of man, which again I argue is not even a biblical idea, if we allow that that's the way God does it, you still have a God who could save, who could override, but has decided not to. Those that deny him, reject him, God has decided to let the most powerful thing be their no to him. So you still have a God who is making a decision. And friends, let's admit that we interpret that negatively as if we are wiser than God and we know what God should do with his creation more than he does. Friends, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. His mercy is much richer for a sinner than ours is. And here's, let's flip it now. 
Let's flip it. Let's see it not from a fallen, pessimistic human point of view, but let's see it from a God-centered, Bible-saturated point of view. Because the Lord does it, truth five here in our list, no one is beyond God, the Spirit's reach. Nobody is unsavable. It doesn't depend on a man or a woman. It doesn't depend on the family that they come from. It doesn't depend on their intellectual curiosity. It doesn't depend on their interest. He creates life out of nothing. He doesn't need raw material. He doesn't need your wayward son to show interest. He is able to save, Hebrews 7.25, to the uttermost. And for those of us that have family and friends that don't know Jesus, let's repent of our pessimism and let's run to the optimism of the richness of God's mercy and let's live there because we're praying to a God who can actually save, who delights in overriding a sinner's stubborn will and isn't bound, isn't bound to acquiescing to a sinner's rejection of him. Truth number six, we end with this. Because salvation is holy from the Lord, as Jesus has taught us, it comes from the Spirit, it comes from God. We're born, look, let me stop here. Um, I went home to visit my parents, and we were talking about our early days as a family. Um, I was born on January 13th, 1971. I don't remember that day. <laughs> I was there. But you guys understand that there's things that had to happen in order for that day to come about that I had no part in engineering. You get that, right? Got some kids in the room. I don't want to go any deeper than that. You got that, right? Okay. And that's the truth of regeneration. And what should this produce in us? Truth six, because salvation is wholly, completely from the Lord, Christians, believers, those who have experienced this new birth, we are humbled. We're humbled. God is exalted. Worship is fueled. And joy should be deepened. I'm humbled because I know that it's not because of anything in me. God didn't pick me on his team because I had a good 40 time or because I had a good singing voice or because he could use me in any way. Let's stop saying, I say it often, let's stop looking at Hollywood stars and athletes and saying, if, if God could only save them, just imagine what they could do for the kingdom. They can't do anything for the kingdom. The flesh profits nothing at all. God doesn't need man's ability. Amen. Praise God. We love souls. We want them to see. We want, we want people to get saved. But let's not act like God needs American celebrity culture to advance the gospel. And let's stop making so much out of celebrity culture or celebrity preachers. We are cult of personality churches so often in America. But I digress. We should be humbled. Not many of you were wise, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were noble. But God chose what is weak in this world to shame the wisdom of this world. 
we should be humbled when we considered the fact that it was God's grace. Now, yes, he uses means. Yes, he used maybe the kindness of you being born into a Christian home. Yes, maybe he used the discipleship of your parents or a good Sunday school teacher. Yes, he might use the preacher of that church where you heard the gospel. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. Yes, to say that God is sovereign in salvation and he's free in salvation, to give it to whoever he wills is not to say, hear me, it's not to say that God doesn't use means. Of course he does. But all of those means flow from his sovereign plan. And he uses it. And listen to this. This is the good news. He's not bound to his traditional means. He doesn't need you to grow up in church. He doesn't need you to have good parents. He doesn't need you to be interested in him spiritually. He saves whom he wills. He brings life from dead hearts. And that should cause humility in us. When we look at a world around us, we should not be cynical. We should not be pessimistic. We should not be judgmental. We should be utterly humbled. And we should look at God more gloriously. He should be more exalted in our minds. We should marvel more deeply at grace. And our worship of him, our service of him, our hands put to the plow should be holding on tighter because we know that we were saved for a purpose, which is to bring glory to him. And finally, our joy, our joy should be deepened, as Robert read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It's joy inexpressible. When I think about this, when I consider who I was, when I consider what God has done, when I consider what he saved me from, when I consider what eternity would be without Christ, then my joy, my joy is deepened and it unclenches my hands from the temporal joys of this world because I'm fastened to the joy of being united with Christ forever. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? If I have Christ, I have all that there is to have. And therefore, I don't need to grope around as if I can find Counterfeit joy in this world. And friends, I need that message. Because as Paul said earlier this morning in between songs, remember he said, we, we all suffer from gospel amnesia. And when I consider the doctrine of the new birth, and I think about it, my joy is deepened. Friends, you, you must be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. That's what the scriptures say to us. You must be born again. You can't do it. You're dead. I'm not. Uh, my, my hope, Spurgeon said back in the 1800s, he says, my hope does not lie in the freeness of human will. It lies in the freeness of grace. Here's the good news of the gospel. You need to come to the end of yourself. I think the Bible intentionally backs us into a corner. If you're feeling discouraged right now, if you're feeling kind of hopeless, I think that might be a good move in your life because what's happening is the things that you've previously found hope in, 
your ability to affect change in your life or maybe make an improvement that never seems to last. God is stripping you of those things. So if this truth is kind of angering you a little bit or causing you, oh my gosh, it's all up there, that's actually something good is happening to you. You're being backed into a corner. You're being stripped of all self-sufficiency and that's the very place you need to be so that you will finally look away from yourself and look to God. He's putting you on the table and he's pulling all of the little false life supports off of you so that you will finally die. Because until you get to that flatline place where there's no beep on the monitor, where you know that you can't do it, you will never reach for grace. God kills before he heals. He wounds before he brings life. And that may be what he's doing to you now. If that's happening to you, don't run away in fear. Run to God and trust. Friends, I believe that you, if that's happening to you, forgive the analogy, but I think it's biblical. You're in the birth canal of the Holy Spirit. You're about to be born, and you're getting slapped in just a second when you come out. And then you breathe. You breathe. And what's that breath? It's faith. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. He, the perfect righteous one, obeyed God where you've disobeyed him in every way. He laid down his perfect sinful life, his divine life on a cross to absorb the wrath of the Father. He satisfied it all. He removed it. He rose again in victory. And he has the words of life. And he's saying to you, 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 Lazarus, he's saying to you, get up, get up from the grave and believe. So do that now. You must be born again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth, Lord. Use it to awaken dead hearts, I pray, and use it to deepen the hearts, the joy of those already awakened for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.